This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. When you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible free for 30 days, go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Or make a donation directly on www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, primate RNA, pocket satellite communications and more. But first up, here's the news. And an adult content warning, the next three minutes about men's sexual health. If that's a problem, fast forward three minutes. Sex with more women linked with less prostate cancer. One in seven men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer in their life. The prostate gland produces a fluid that forms part of semen, which protects and nourishes sperm. A study by the University of Montreal School of Public Health shows a correlation between having sex with more than 20 women over a lifetime and a reduced risk of prostate cancer. The risk was a third less compared to men who had sex with only one woman in their life, while having sex with the same number of men is associated with an increased risk of prostate cancer. They report these two contradicting correlations, but confess as yet they have no explanation for what it could mean. The researchers analysed data from over 3,000 men in Montreal. Half were diagnosed with prostate cancer and half were healthy. The men answered a questionnaire about their sexual history, as well as social, environmental and lifestyle aspects of their lives. With such a large sample size, it's likely the correlations point to some kind of cause and effect. Men who had sex with over 20 women over the course of their lives had a 28% lower risk of any kind of prostate cancer than men who had had sex with less than 20 women, and enjoyed a 19% lower risk of developing aggressive prostate cancer. However, the number of sexually transmitted infection they'd suffered in their lifetime had no effect on the risk of prostate cancer. Those who had never had sex were twice as likely to develop prostate cancer than men who reported having sex with any number of women. There was, however, no connection between the age at which they first had sex and the risk of prostate cancer. The researchers speculated that the more ejaculations a man has, the less cancer-causing substances can build up in his prostate. So maybe that was causing the reduced risk in men who had sex with more women over their lifetime. But no, the data for gay men in the study seems to contradict that idea. Men who had sex with over 20 male sexual partners over their lifetime were twice as likely to develop any kind of prostate cancer than men who had never had a sexual partner. Being a virgin halved the risk. Even worse, men who had sex with over 20 men over the course of their lifetime had five times as much risk of developing a less aggressive prostate cancer than those who had sex with only one man. The researchers say it's too early to draw any conclusions about the correlations they've found. 
These are tantalising facts, but we just don't know what they mean yet. The paper was published in Cancer Epidemiology and was titled Sexual Partners, Sexually Transmitted Infections and Prostate Cancer Risk. Mind-switched genetic implants for mice. Researchers at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, ETH Zurich, have developed a system where the brainwaves of a human wearing an electrode headset can switch an implant inside a mouse's body that in turn switches on and off the expression of a protein by a gene activated by light. The implant controls the genes by beaming light at bacteria which have been genetically engineered to react to the light by activating a gene to express a protein. Their intention is to develop a system that monitors brainwaves and releases medication when the brainwaves go wrong, like in a seizure or in chronic pain. People could also simply think, on and off, a light inside the implant that shines through the mouse's skin. The mice can run, but they can't hide because you can light them up with a thought. Volunteers were able to raise or lower the levels of a protein circulating through a mouse's bloodstream by changing the way they thought. They wore an electroencephalograph EEG electrode headset to monitor the brain waves for the mind states of meditation or concentration. The researchers asked volunteers to play a focus game of Minecraft for 10 minutes or to control their brain activity in response to the brightness of an LED display or to simply relax by meditating or letting their minds wander. This gave them concentration, biofeedback and meditation brain waves to detect and act on. The signal is picked up by a computer that switches a magnetic field generator on or off. The magnetic field wirelessly powers an implant in the mouse. Inside the implant, a receiver antenna coil powers a red light-emitting diode, which lights up a bacterial culture chamber. Genetically engineered bacteria are optogenetically switched by the light and activate the gene to produce the proteins on demand and stop as soon as the light goes out. The proteins diffuse out of the implant through a membrane and into the mouse's bloodstream. In the experiment, the protein was detectable but didn't have any effect on the mouse. In further experiments, volunteers could see the implant was activated by their thoughts because they could see the red light shining through the mouse's skin. Unfortunately, implants like this cannot be permanent because they accumulate fibrous scar tissue and eventually block up. You may need to have them implanted near the skin so they can easily be replaced with fresh ones every six months. Or perhaps other researchers may just find a way to stop the scars forming or a way to have the implant just on top of the skin like a bandage. The researchers in Zurich have daisy-chained a whole bunch of interesting technology in an apparently mad science way. After all, they could have simply pressed a button to switch the magnetic field generator on and off to power the implant. Did it have to be brainwave controlled? Well, yes it does. You can't push a button when you're suffering a seizure. It's better if the seizure is detected from your brainwaves and the medication is released automatically as you need it. Why have genetically engineered bacteria controlled by light instead of just a reservoir of medication? Well, if the bacteria are fed by nutrients in the blood, then the implant could keep producing a medically active protein for as long as the bacteria can be kept alive and the protein medication would be fresh without any issues of it degrading from the heat of being inside a body. The number of gadgets operated by reading brainwaves just keeps going up. 
The paper was published in the journal Nature Communications and was titled Mind Control Transgene Expression by a Wireless-Powered Optogenetic Designer Cell Implant. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Leonard Lipovich is an associate professor with tenure at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan at the Center for Molecular Medicine and Genetics. He's a co-investigator of the ENCODE Consortium, Encyclopedia of DNA Elements that's one of the successes to the original Human Genome Project. I met Leonard at a talk he gave for Biohack Sydney. This is part two of the interview I recorded in a meeting room at the University of New South Wales. I began by asking him about his research into primate RNA and evolution. Ian, thank you for bringing us back to the topic of evolution, which we touched on briefly earlier in the broadcast. So, I will summarize in a nutshell probably the last 15 years of RNA, mammalian RNA, evolutionary biology, and one very surprising discovery has been the following. Protein-coding genes, which is what people have been studying for decades, are usually highly conserved. If you compare human with uh, primates or even human with mouse uh, or fly or worm or even bacteria, uh, chances are we have quite a few or, or many or most proteins in common. Uh, I think uh, about 95% of our protein-coding genes have clear-cut homologs in, in mice. But with RNA, for reasons that are quite complex, this has not been the story at all. Uh, we published a paper with the ENCODE Consortium in 2012, one of our early contributions, Darien et al., and that paper is free online. I, I will certainly send you a package of links, uh, showing that at least one-third of non-coding RNA genes, long non-coding RNA genes, which is the kind that we study in humans, are unique to humans and primates. You find the gene in human, you find the homologue or a putative orthologue, um, uh, equivalent of the gene in a different species, in some or all primates, but you do not find it in any non-primate. So I'm actually a PhD graduate of Mary Claire King's lab, and Mary Claire, uh, interestingly enough, published a paper in Science before I was born, showing that human proteins and chimpanzee proteins, uh, based on whatever methods they had access to in the 70s, isozymes, very classic methods, looked nearly identical. And logical conclusion being that human-chimpanzee differences may be due to not to proteins, but to something else. So we are actually more concerned about primate-non-primate differences as opposed to human-chimpanzee, and between one-third and more than one-half of long non-coding RNAs in humans are primate-specific. So what my lab works on, um, and in fact, we recently, uh, surprisingly, uh, very surprisingly, were given a $1.5 million um, NIH, U.S. National Institutes of Health New Innovator Award, and this is public information, it's online already at the moment, to study the role that primate-specific long non-coding RNAs play in human breast cancer progression. Over the last several years, funded partly by the American Cancer Society and partly by ENCODE, our lab has amassed a wealth of preliminary data which suggests that certain, not all, but certain primate-specific long non-coding RNAs in a specific type of breast cancer known as estrogen receptor 
positive breast cancer are important, potentially essential for cell proliferation. We have shown in cell culture in the lab, they either make cells grow or turning them off, knocking them down, as we say, makes cells die. We are very excited and honored. We are grateful to the NIH for supporting this work and for seeing its importance. And we hope to actually advance toward more clinical translational significance and developing these RNAs as drug target candidates in the next five years. So I would like to point out that uh, ENCODE is a fantastic goldmine of completely free publicly available resources that you're all welcome to use. You do not need any permission. You do not need any license or to pay any royalties. I think all the consortium is asking is um, if something comes out of your work that's commercializable or publishable, at least you acknowledge and hopefully you reference the consortium publication. So I would like to encourage everyone um, to explore encodeproject.org, which is the consortium's recently relaunched website. I did not directly contribute to developing the site, but we have contributed to produce and for the most part, annotating and analyzing some of the data sets that, that are available on the site. I would like to add that RNA is potentially one of the most exciting topics in biology today. Tom Cech, Nobel Prize laureate, uh, has a theory about the ancient RNA world back at the dawn of all life. Uh, Tom and many others think that RNA predated DNA and protein, but here we're talking about the primate-specific postmodern disease-causing RNA world. So to me as a private individual, it's almost a philosophical metaphysical connection from the dawn of all life to primate-specific RNAs that are causing disease in humans and could potentially make good drug targets. So, um, and another take home message is that we are not big mice without tails. We are different from model organisms and RNA is emerging as a key reason for those differences in both health and disease. Well, Lena Lipovich, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ian. It's been a pleasure and it's a privilege and an honor to be on this broadcast. I am delighted to meet you and I'm delighted to bring this quick summary of RNA genomics to your lovely audience. I wish them every measure of success. That was Lena Lipovich from Wayne State University talking about primate RNA and evolution, visiting the University of New South Wales. While we're at the University of New South Wales, do you know they have a society offering help with 3D printing and other ways to make things? At the Sydney Mini Maker Fair, I spoke with Roche Matthew, one of the executives of Create UNSW. Create UNSW is a student-led society. We are a very young one, only starting up last year. We've just been a student society here to you know, promote the maker movement within the uh, you know, uh, university, as well as to you know, just get some students more you know, open to such technology. So we do a various a lot of services for the students. One thing is we do have our quadcopter kits that we do sell, and just to get some you know more things up there for students to learn. We also do Arduino workshops. So Arduinos are just like small microcontrollers. So we run workshops weekly, just to teach students you know how to use it, how to program, and help them with some various projects, things like that. We do also run weekly hackerspaces. So that's at the College of Fine Arts in Paddington, our other campus. Um, there, you know, a lot of students bring their projects over, we can help them with things like that, you know, and also show them various projects that we are running, including the UAV, the Unmanned Air Vehicle Project, as well as the Unmanned Ground Vehicle Project, which we do run for students to be a part of and get amongst it as well. So is that like a team effort to build a drone? Of course. So both projects are very team-based, having various roles within it, you know, just to give a broad, you know, perspective on everything. So especially we have a lot of students that are, you know, studying engineering. So, you know, for these we do have like aerospace engineers, electrical, mechanical, software, 
each of them, you know, able to work within their own field if they like, or even broaden themselves to other various aspects to learn and work on these projects. So. And how is the hackerspace set up? What sort of resources, as well as all these people to help you, what sort of resources are there? The university, um, especially at COFO, have been very, very helpful in that, uh, providing us to access to their 3D printing services as well. So they've got about five to six 3D printers that we have access to if people want to print themselves, even like soldering stations, things like that. COFA have been happy enough to have their own workshops, do inductions. So if students do want to do any metal workshop, woodwork, welding, things like that, it's all open there to them as well. And is it only UNSW students? At this point, being only from the society university, we have had mostly UNSW students. We have had a lot of people that come through the campus and do have a look. We also run various high school workshops, things like that, that the university provides. So there's a lot of students that come by. We run workshops, including Arduino and things like that, for them to program things and, you know, get a better understanding of what the uni itself is like as well. And you run the Hackerspace every Friday? Yeah, so it's every Friday. We did have one Mondays as well, but the Friday one has been more popular. So we just like to bring everyone over to the other campus as well, have a good look around, have a go of the 3D printers, things like that, and, you know, work on everything and get together. And do you have a website? Uh, yes, we do. So it's www.createunsw.com.au. We also have our Facebook pages, Wikipedia, and things like that as well. Well, Roshan, thank you very much. Thank you so much. You can find out more at www.createunsw.com.au. Shane Morris is a futurist who lives in Newcastle in rural New South Wales. He displayed some of his ideas and solutions to problems we face today at the Sydney Mini Maker Fair. This is part two of an interview that was recorded outside Burwood Library at an open-air coffee shop. Shane Morris is working on a portable satellite communicator and sunlight-readable GPS while checking calculations for physicists at the University of New South Wales. This is for obviously taking out in the bush, uh, mining companies, uh, hikers, anyone who's concerned for their safety in the bush. Status updated where they are, sunlight readable, and if they fall into any trouble or distress, three buttons on the side and help shall be on the way. There's an international centre in the States that actually coordinates with different countries' uh, rescue services to actually get help and assistance when needed. And so what's different about your GPS other than the fact you can read the screen in sunlight? Well, it's an all-in-one unit. I mean, there's plenty of satellite communicators that do not have screens and have big batteries and a big iridium modules and they're in waterproof cases and they don't do much except for sit there and not much. <laughs> And, I mean, there's EPIRBs where you crack the seal and a couple of hours later there's a chopper coming to get you. But this is a sunlight-readable GPS, so it's a functional piece of equipment, but it's also in reach when you need it if you break a leg or throw an ankle or whatever the case may have you. Now, knowing me, I tend to uh, roll on my ankles a little bit, so such a thing out in the middle of the bush would be one hell of an assurance to me. And the SOS you send, how does that get sent out? Is that just over mobile phone or is that actually sent over a satellite network? It's sent over the Iridium network, the short burst data system. There was an article just recently in Make magazine that talked about using the Iridium network for Arduinos and Raspberry Pis that are geo-dispersed. Such technology could be used for reading out sensor readings out in the middle of the bush, maybe on tailings of a mine or something like that. There is lots and lots of scope for this, but the aspect here is just bringing all this together. So where are you at with this project? At the point where I'm trying to save enough money and get it, get the Iridium module. 
right? So you're, you're still building the prototype? I am, yes. And the next project? Actually, I've been asked to prepare a report that looks into the true cost of renewable energies. Depends on who's asking. A nuclear physicist from UNSW has asked me to go through all these calculations and prepare a report that looks at why hydroelectric has been fudged to make uh, high efficiency photovoltaics and wind generators look better than what they actually are. I had a tour of the high efficiency photo, photovoltaics lab in UNSW in about 2004 and their leading professor said to me we will expend more energy in creating this photo cell than we will ever get out of it in its operational lifetime. So the overall net gain is negative. Now I'm sure I'm going to anchor quite a few greenies out there, but please check your facts. There is more energy put into creating the infrastructure and the mechanics of these wonderful renewable systems, which I think are a future for us. But we must look at the definite cost of what we are putting in and what we are going to get out. Especially if we are putting in all this energy now with its CO2 price, and then 20 years down the track, that's when we decommission this equipment and we've got less than what we put into it at that 20 year point. Could that change when the thin film solar cells that CSIRO is developing that will be printed onto plastic and other thin, cheap objects come on the market? I've not actually seen those, but I can imagine. I've seen 3D printed uh, lithium polymer batteries, which apparently have three times the capacity of their conventional count parts so I don't doubt that this is a technology that is going ahead and I can imagine that the actual overall capital costs and energy expenditure costs on such a solar cell would be lower than say a high efficiency solar cell such as the ones that were initially developed at UNSW but we have to really ask ourselves and scratch our heads at the question of what we're putting in and how is it coming back out and of course, what the CSIRO, as you just mentioned, is, is a good thing and probably a way to the future. We, we need to be aware of this cost at all times and we shouldn't be smudging figures from one awfully good way of making renewable energy, especially considering that Australia is a dry country, and then you know, trying to make a one-size-fits-all with other renewable technologies. And can you tell me a little bit about your background? So obviously you're an inventor and you're an engineer, so you, you know something about engineering, you know something about physics. So, so what's your educational or professional background? I'm actually a telecommunications line tech by trade. Did that when I was in my early 20s. Um, I was quite good at it apparently. <laughs> and I'd always had a general interest in the mechanics and the, well, more the mechanics of electro electronic equipment. I've been programming computers since I was eight years old. I now program in 15 different languages. I um, work on robotic systems, I work on 3D design, I work on all kinds of code. I have an interest in artificial intelligence, have an interest in networking. Yes, our, our friends with the uh, air guns there again. Yes. I have interest in power delivery systems, I have an interest in electric traction. Obviously, I've done lots and lots of mathematical calculations in the past, <laughs> so they just, you know, haunt me when I sleep. And I have a healthy interest in why the world around me works the way it does. 
I like to ask questions. I like to know what's in those anonymous buildings on the sides of roads and tracks and stuff like that. And I'm always curious. I'm always wanting to know more about everything. I'd like to say that the future has to be automated. The future, for it to exist, has to start being automated. We need to get, I suppose, a little tougher on how we're treating this world because we only get one world at this point in time until we invent hyperdrive or something like that. But realistically speaking, we've only got one world. We've made quite a fair few species of animals and plants extinct in the last couple hundred years. We need to start getting tough about what we're really doing and what the true cost to this world really is. Because once it's gone, it's gone. And on that note, Shane Morris, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Anne. That was Shane Morris, futurist and inventor from Newcastle. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and would like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, 2XX in Canberra, and 3NBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, Radio On Demand and On The Go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and review Diffusion. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And do check the website for links and photos from this week's show. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. I'm putting together a crowdfunding campaign for Diffusion on funscience.org.au. It's almost live. What's keeping me stuck has been what rewards I should offer to people who will help fund the show. What would you like in return for making a donation or is just getting a free podcast every week enough of a reward? Or are you happy to simply make a donation directly using the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com? I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
High-pressure cells, called highs, are areas of heavier air which are cold or dry or both. Such air, passing over warmer ground, brings clear weather because water droplets tend to evaporate. Low-pressure cells, called lows, are areas of air which are warm or moist or both. Such air, passing over cooled ground, condenses from below to form overcasts or steady rains. Unequal heating of the earth causes winds to circulate. The direction of the winds changes as the earth rotates. Shifting masses of the air, whirling, twirling, swirling by, make the pressure cells up there, pressure cells both low and high. Unequal heating of the earth causes winds to circulate. The direction of the winds changes as the earth rotates. Shifting masses of the air, whirling, twirling, swirling by, make the pressure cells up there, pressure cells both low and high.